0: Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice, Buck Sexton.
4: More arrests, more raids, more investigation ongoing in the aftermath of the Manchester jihadist uh, terror attack. Here's some of the headlines. You will be aware that the level of activity in this investigation is intense and is continuing at a fast pace. We are investigating a network. We are looking into a network that is the people supporting this guy. He was bad enough. That means troops deployed on the streets of the UK. The military are supporting policing across
1: the country uh, under the code name Operation Temperate.
0: Honestly, I'm just seeing it all over the news and i just be like i'm reliving it all over again it was just the worst experience of my life because they want to divide us don't they they want us to turn on our neighbors and it'll never happen not here and i'm going to stay in town and i'm going to deliver i'm just going to walk about and smile at people that's all i can do is just walk about and smile at people we have got to look after each other now don't we
4: terrorized population in manchester and in the broader United Kingdom, and we have updates on where the investigation, the continuous uh, uh, effort to try and track down every thread of this, uh, we have updates on where this stands. You have the Manchester bomber uh, Salman Abedi likely not acting alone. In fact, it is now believed that other members of his family, including uh, his father, who was arrested in Tripoli, in Libya, earlier today, as well as a a brother um, was arrested, one of his brothers. So now we look at this and we see that there are additional family members that are believed to have ties into uh, extremism. We don't know if they assisted necessarily in this plot, although that certainly remains a distinct possibility So we're going to keep looking at all of the um, developments as they come in here in this story and and everything else that we've got going on. Um, But first, I I wanted to talk about how we are at the point in the post-terrorist act cycle. uh, We are at the point where we've read the think pieces. There have been... uh, Outraged monologues on TV, people have been talking about this on social media, people have been uh, giving their sense of it in the news, and there's not a lot of new thinking. There's not much in the way of answers to all of this. It's very hard uh, to point to anything that has been raised as a means of dealing with this um people just say that we should come together they say that we will prevail they say that uh, we cannot be defeated by these acts of savagery all of that is true but we want to prevent the next act of savagery we're not just getting used to this or at least we shouldn't just get used to this every few weeks or few months Uh, we want this to stop as i said to you yesterday here on the show there are large portions of the world, there are many billions of people who do not engage in jihadist terrorism. This is not something that should become normalized in our consciousness. This is not uh, a, a future that has to be. But to stop it, I think we have to look at what the truth of jihadist ideology and Islamist philosophy uh, really is. And how dangerous it is and how prevalent it is. And and to that end, you had last night uh, on Fox, uh, Tucker Carlson, who's now in the in the big chair for Bill O'Reilly permanently. Rather, that is now the Tucker Carlson chair. Uh, He got into some numbers that I've discussed before. In fact, I've talked about them on radio. uh, And there are these lead to fierce debates over what the beliefs, what the beliefs really are of large populations of the Muslim world. Uh, Again, we've talked about this a bit uh, earlier in the week, that while there's just a small, small percentage of Muslims are jihadists and engage in violence, once you start extrapolating this out and looking at uh, those who support Sharia law, those who support um, death for apostasy, meaning one who leaves the Islamic faith, a Muslim who renounces and and, and leaves the Islamic faith. Um, the numbers are troubling. It's still not a majority. It's not everyone, but it's a large part of. Uh, well, it's a large number, I should say. It's in the tens of millions or even the hundreds of millions, depending on how you look at the numbers. So we can do a bit of terrorism uh, by the numbers and see which I'll get to in a little bit, uh, as well as Islamophobia by the numbers. Um, but first, let's look at Islamism by the numbers. And this is what Carlson was referring to last night on his show.
1: Last year, 29% of French Muslims said they viewed Sharia as a higher law than the civil laws of France. Of course, we shouldn't be surprised that radical views are common among Western Muslims because they're even more common in their home nations. In 2014, 47% of Bangladeshi Muslims said suicide bombings to defend Islam were acceptable, almost half. A quarter of Egyptians said the same thing, a fifth of Turks and Malaysians agreed. In 2009, 78% of Pakistani Muslims told Pew the people who leave Islam should be killed, murder for apostasy. In Egypt, support for that was 86%, Afghanistan, 79%, Bangladesh, 44%, Iraq, 42%. Well, these are not little places, obscure theocracies in remote regions, they're some of the biggest countries in the Muslim world, and more to the point, they've sent millions of immigrants to the West. We could go on like this for the whole show. There's an awful lot of research on the subject, and all the numbers tell the same story. Why are they being ignored? Now, our leaders like to boast they believe in science, that they let data and hard evidence drive their policies. They are lying, and never more obviously than in this case. By the way, they don't t- want to see the numbers; they actively suppress.
4: Tucker jumps one step here. That I think is very important. What's the story? We have a lot of numbers. We have a lot of data. What's the story that we should take from it? Uh, I I think that's what no one is willing to say. Sure, you can cite Pew data or other polling, and everybody will begin to come to some conclusions about that. But what's the overall conclusion we should come to? Uh, why is it that even in parts of the world that are geographically Rich uh, in terms of resources, or why is it that uh, the Muslim world lags so far behind much of the rest of the world? Um, not just the Judeo Christian world of Europe and America, but uh, you, you compare the Islamic world to uh, Buddhist majority countries, you compare it uh, to the Far East, you compare it to an, any number of places. Um, and you see a distinct pattern and the pattern is an overwhelming disparity of what we would call regressive behavior um, or regressive attitudes this is a major problem because when you're looking at as any social scientist can tell you or with social policy sure when you're dealing with aggregates it's not fair to judge any individual by what's going on in the aggregate but you don't make policy based on what Um, you think is going to be perfect, you make policy based on what is likely to happen overall, and you look at large numbers to do that. Right. This, This is how it works with insurance. They'll look at an entire population for insurance purposes and say, well, it is likelier if you are a young male, for example, that you will speed and you will get into a serious accident than if you are female. That's not to say that young males are all going to do that. I've only gotten one speeding ticket in my life. Um, but And that was was while I was a young male in college. But we still see that there are policies that can be made based on that. And at a minimum, there is a willingness to embrace those numerical disparities. What I'm saying here is that you look at the numbers and there's a big problem in the Muslim world. A very, very big problem. Uh, Why is it that there are so many Muslim countries... Uh, Muslim majority countries, I should say, where uh, women's rights are in such a terrible state, where there is a lack of educational progress and achievement, where there's a lack of human rights, where there's a lack of rule of law. You just go down the line and you see a lot of problems. Now, this is where people would say, oh, well, what about Turkey? And I'm not saying there's not exceptions, although Turkey's got its problems these days and does have rising Islamism. uh, But. Overall, there's something going on here that can't really be ignored, even though people are much more comfortable with ignoring it. The Pew polling often gets people very fired up. They say, oh, that's so unfair. That's so Islamophobic. But why is it that data now all of a sudden, the same media that will tell us that Trump's approval ratings are ironclad proof of what a bad job he's doing, will then turn around and say, well, the the Pew stuff is... That's irrelevant Uh, that there are so many Muslims around the world, millions of them. I mean, 20 percent of a country with 100 million people is a lot of people. Right. We get that. So when we're talking about places of the size, population wise of Pakistan, of Turkey, Iraq, of Saudi Arabia. 10, 20, 30 percent of a population that has a certain belief is a lot of people. And those beliefs oftentimes are wrong. And that's really what Tucker didn't say. And that's what people don't want to say, that there are a lot of beliefs that are widespread in the Islamic world that are just wrong. They're not different. They're not their way of doing things. They are either incorrect or immoral. That doesn't mean that everybody holds them. It doesn't mean that everyone who's a Muslim thinks this or holds these beliefs, but it is widespread. It is commonplace. And we have to be willing to say that it is wrong. And part of also saying that something is wrong is being willing to say that something else is better. So, for example, we can take it country by country if we want. Our system of laws is better than Saudi Arabia's system of laws. In fact, I would even take it a step beyond. Our culture is better than Saudi Arabia's culture. We could do this with any number of countries in the Muslim world. This might be seen by some as... Uh, Sort of intellectual imperialism or racism or xenophobia or any number of other uh, facile objections from supposed intellectuals who are just cowards, just lazy cowards. That's unfortunately far too common within our own academic and intelligentsia class in this country. But that's really where it starts, isn't it? We look at the data. We can talk more about the data but until we're willing to say this idea of death for apostasy is wrong, the notion that the Quran provides laws that are better than the laws that are voted upon by human beings based in individual dignity and universal human rights, that's wrong. If we don't say that, then are we even engaging in an ideological fight? No, we're just sitting around waiting for the next attack, aren't we? That was the missing piece for me in that uh, monologue last night, and it's it's important to look at the numbers and I appreciate that Tucker and others are doing that but it's also important and willing to say that there's not just a problem what is the problem the problem is that we don't want to tell people that in some cases with some specifics we have better ideas than they do not necess- not talking about belief per se but actual ideas better culture too in some ways I'm not, I'm not comparing food I'm comparing culture that includes politics and law and modes of conduct in everyday life all right i've got to hit a break here we'll be right back team. welcome back team looking at terrorism by the numbers is uh, is a worthwhile exercise to be sure i'm assuming that in the days ahead there will be some analysis probably on the huffington post slate maybe the new york times but they usually leave this to the the far left uh the far left websites and uh news outlets out there that don't even pretend to be about journalism they're just opinion uh but you'll see some i guess huffington post thinks it's journalism right I, i can't keep it straight uh you'll see analysis of uh terrorism meant to meant to show a variety of non sequiturs of of unimportant distractions things not related to the topic at hand Uh, they'll say that you should be more afraid of drowning in the bathtub than terrorism or something like that they'll say that most terrorism is whether in the uk or in america um, non uh, non non-jihadist or non-islamic i'll just tell you right now to look for the tricks Uh, for example in the context of Terrorism in America, and this is a a debate that I had on CNN about this, uh, where the uh, other individual, I I believe his argument was uh, rather handily dismantled. But it's uh, here's what they do. I mean, I dismantled it. Here's what they do. And I'll give you the, the quick version of it. They'll say that there's more terrorism in the U.S. that's right wing than anything else. And you'll say, well, that seems impossible because, you know, when was the last time a guy... Uh, uh, wrapped in a Gazan flag, ran into a market and, and blew up a bunch of people. And you'll be like, well, that that has never happened. So wh- what is this? First of all, their definition of right wing is very elastic and used specifically to uh, muddy the waters and, and complicate things. Uh, but even beyond that, they include hate crimes under the, defi- the broad definition of t- acts of terror or terrorism in this country including nonviolent property hate crimes. So lighting an SUV on fire because you're an eco-terrorist is terrorism in the same way that the Pulse nightclub massacre is terrorism. Well, of course, this is making a, a, a preposterous uh, comparison and, and making things... Seem, each one of those counts as one, don't you see, in the way that they tally the data. Uh, but they also don't... So so that's one thing. They expand what terrorism is so that it's almost meaningless, And then beyond that, they won't account for the percentage, the proportion of the U.S. population that is Muslim, which is about one percent. It's roughly three million people. Uh, They won't account for the fact that they so even if there's only 20 percent of U.S. terrorist incidents involve jihadist or Muslim extremist terrorism. Well, that's 20 X their share of the population. Right. So that's a disproportionate share that. Um, would be uh, Islamic extremism as a factor of the overall population. But then once you control for lethality in this discussion, once you look at uh, people dying because of terrorism, uh, then you have not only a disproportionate share of overall terrorist acts are, are perpetrated by extremist um, Muslims, but a, a vast majority when you include nine eleven of lethal terrorist incidents in the last 30 years um, are the result of islamic extremism uh, and that's that's just a, a, a an obvious argument that anybody who spent time looking at the subject matter trying to find the truth they would come to that conclusion but on the other side they're not trying to come to a conclusion about the truth as i said before the same way that they won't make proclamations like the way that women are treated in the Muslim world is a problem. Doesn't mean in some places it's not OK and in other places it's terrible. Of course, that's the case. Some places it's a little better. Some places a little worse. Some places it's absolutely reprehensible. Other places it's you know not so bad. Um, but they don't want to say that. They view that as cultural imperialism or that they think that this is uh, the ugly Americanism on display that we should all be working hard to not fall into Um, but if we won't make basic statements of truth well then clearly we're not trying to find the truth either right if if we can look at something and know that there's a problem in the muslim world there are many problems big problems this is and i i know this is where they'll turn around and say to us well there are problems in the christian judeo-christian world as well in europe and america and well, yeah, but it's a question of scale, isn't it? This is the, the the way journalists will talk about this at the New York Times, Washington Post and other places. The way they will discuss Islam or the the arguing, uh, the tactics of argument that they will use. Remind me of when uh, Ahmadinejad came to Columbia University here in New York City. And anytime he was asked a question about, you know, repression or terrorism or uh, what about. Um, gay rights in your country his response was something about how well america does bad stuff too i mean one of the worst and most dishonest what about you'll ever see will happen in media when we try to have a discussion about why does the muslim world have so many problems why are there so many terrible despotic dysfunctional violent countries and why are they incubating cultures that are so disastrous not just for those countries but for the rest of the world when that is exported to them when you try to have that discussion you'll see all kinds of whataboutism you know well, look at the treatment of women in the muslim world oh do you know that women in america only make 78 cents on the dollar or whatever it is it's a lie so it doesn't really matter but that is one of the worst whataboutisms all right i'm gonna hit a quick break here team we'll get more of this terror by the numbers on the flip side.
0: Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off.
2: Although it's still early in the investigation, we know enough to say that this was an act of terror and an act of hate.
4: So many young, beautiful, innocent people living and enjoying their lives murdered by evil losers
1: in life.
2: We are still learning all the facts. This is an open investigation. We've reached no definitive judgment on the precise
1: motivations of the killer.
4: I won't call them monsters because
1: they would like that term. They would think that's a great name.
2: I've directed that we must spare no effort to determine what, if any, inspiration or association this killer may have had with terrorist groups. What is clear is that he was a person filled with hatred.
0: I will call them from now on losers because that's what they are. They're losers.
4: There you have the reactions we'll have of fun. two different commanders-in-chief, uh, President Obama at the time after the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando and President Trump reacting to the Manchester bombing. A lot of focus on the the terminology and the tone After these these incidents, uh, especially in the era of Trump, we shouldn't be surprised, I suppose, that there are so many folks who are more worried about the words that Trump uses than they are, it seems, about defining and confronting uh, this enemy on the battlefield of ideas as well as on the battlefield, whether it's in Iraq, Syria or on the domestic battlefields against counterterrorism in europe and here at home in america uh hatred of trump it seems for many on the left eclipses hatred of the jihadists as crazy as that sounds uh it is if you read enough articles and spend enough time uh, with the ideology of the progressive left you'll see that it's true but i want to get back into the the numbers for a moment here um back in 2015 there was an analysis done um by or sorry, it's the State Department's annual county uh, country reports on terrorism. So uh, I've I remember this one because it was stark. Um, you see that there were uh, twenty eight thousand plus people killed in terrorist attacks in twenty fifteen, and uh, they were primary. There were five countries where almost half of the terrorist attacks took place: Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and Nigeria. Um. What do all of those countries have in common? In the case of India and Nigeria, you have split countries between two major religious groups. In India, it is Hindus and Muslims. And in Nigeria, it is Christians and Muslims. Um, But 74% of all deaths in that year in 2015 took place, deaths from terrorism, terrorist attacks, took place in five countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Syria. These are places where, of course, there are jihadist groups that are active. And there's a whole big rest of the world out there, billions of people, not a lot of terrorism going on. Terrorism on a global scale is concentrated in major Muslim countries. It's just just the way that it is and the way that it's been for a while. Um, but when we look at, so that's I think it's important to put those numbers. Into uh, context, uh, and as I said to you, one of the other tricks you'll see in this country when they're discussing jihadist terrorism and trying to minimize it, there's an enormous effort um, that you'll see from the Democrat Party and and others to minimize the effects of jihadist terrorism in America. And one of the worst tricks you'll see is that they will cut 9/11 out. They'll they'll say, well, post 9/11, here's what we found, as if. You could have an accurate assessment of what led to U.S. involvement in the Second World War w- without that whole Pearl Harbor thing. I mean, it's it's shocking. I was I was on CNN once talking about this and I couldn't believe it. And w- another thing they'll say as well. And this goes into the non sequitur or whataboutism or even just the distraction debate by distraction category. They'll say, look at how many people die as a result of. Guns each year in the country, as though uh, criminality spread throughout the whole country, a lot of it involving street level drug crime, by the way, uh, is a similar issue to be tackled in the same way as an ide- an ideology that seeks to destroy every aspect of our way of life. And if it could, would get a nuclear weapon and detonate it in a U.S. city as we know back from the bin laden era and it continues to this day if the leadership of isis could nuke a nuke a u.s city they would do it and there have been efforts in the past to try and procure such materials whether chemical biological or nuclear by these groups uh, there have been efforts that show that this is this is a long-term goal that they have so yes a, a drug dealer on a street corner who shoots somebody is a criminal and should be punished but uh, unless i'm missing something we have no we have no reason to believe that a a drug dealer on a street is trying to destroy an entire us city and kill millions of people these are different problems uh, but they conflate them because the the left believes that islam is a non-white religion therefore all of the usual um, victimology about uh, about all all groups that are non-white comes into play the left also believes that Islam is a useful counterbalance to Christianity because many progressive—the uh, the, the Democrat Party pretends to be Christian, but at its heart and soul is largely atheist, uh, atheist, secular, and uh, collectivist. So they also view Islam as a useful counterweight to uh, Christianity, which they uh, affiliate with the right in this country. So they take themselves—they uh, take up the, the defense of Islam is— Where You'll find it mostly on the left. And now, when I say the defense of Islam, I don't mean the defense of individual Muslims. Individual Muslims deserve all the respect and support and uh, legal and social protections that all the rest of us do. But as an ideology, when we're looking at the full spectrum of ideas that are are represented within the Islamic faith, you start to talk about it honestly, and the left wants to shut you down. They'll call you a racist. They'll call you a xenophobe. They'll call you Islamophobic. And then when you start going numbers on them, they get even angrier. I I thought data mattered to the left, but just like with science, they have abused the term and have shown themselves to be hypocritical in their devotion to objective measures of whether something is accurate or not. Um, But back to. Uh, terrorism by the numbers as i said on, on a global scale uh, muslim countries comprise a vast majority of lethal remember lethal terrorism is what we are most concerned with right I, I don't i don't really sit around and and worry at night that someone's going to scrawl some mean graffiti somewhere that, that that doesn't bother me the same way as someone trying to blow up a bus full of people going to work right these are not these should not be treated as on the same plane the left does it because it's a way of um complicating and distorting the issue but I don't do that. Okay. Um, Here's the other thing: you'll often run into any efforts to take a a position that would be looking more at the Muslim population as a possible source of extremism and terrorism is wrong and racist. Uh, This is something I came up against when I was at the NYPD Intelligence Division, and there were uh, all these different journalists who were trying to find evidence that we were uh, that we were. Uh, harassing Muslims, that we were doing things that were um, against civil liberties. And there, there were many structures in place, legal structures in place, so that we could only pursue criminal investigations. Um, we were always doing our own version of uh, excising material that would come into our possession that wasn't related to uh, a criminal investigation. Um, but I can also tell you that there's some really sketchy stuff that's happened in mosques in New York city. Uh, a lot of it is a lot of it is public. Uh, if you go back and read about the first, uh, well, I should say to the New York city area, the first, uh, attack on the world trade center, uh, a mosque was a center of the conspiracy with the blind shake. I mean, you, when, you know, so people can pretend that there's nothing to see here, but it's been a long time in New York city since there has been a church or a temple that was the center of, Of a major terrorist plot, as in I don't think it's it's ever happened to my knowledge, (laughs) but it certainly has been a very long time if that's been the case. Um, But yet looking in those communities, you run up against all of these sensitivities. And when sensitivities are in conflict with our lives and our safety, we begin to see that the left's power to shut down debate and discussion is diminished. Uh, They can tell us no profiling. They can tell us don't be racist with your Islamophobic commentary and all this other stuff. But there are enough Americans still who say, you know, I've got no problem with my Muslim neighbor. I've got my Muslim neighbor is a good friend of mine. But I I do want law enforcement and the intelligence agencies and the security apparatus in this country to use its resources wisely. And if that means that most of the terrorism investigations involve Muslims who deserve investigation, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to take some disparate impact theory and say, well, there are too many investigations of Muslims for terrorism going on. So let's start some other stuff. I think I've said to you before here on the show that, sure, the NYPD would look at white supremacist terrorism. There there were other uh, active investigations that the FBI had and has, I'm sure, into non-Muslim terrorist groups. But there's a whole lot less of them. So this is this is this cannot be ignored on the uh, point about uh, race. Actually, you know what? I I want to address this this notion that uh, looking at the Islamic community more as a likelier place for jihadist terrorism is rooted in some kind of racism and and fear of the other. Uh, I, I want to smash that objection And I want to do it in a way that I don't think you'll hear anywhere else. But let me hit a break and I will deal with the uh, the criticism of Islam or forget that for a second. Even surveillance of Islamic communities, when warranted, is rooted in racism instead of security policy. I'll deal with that question after this break. Stay with me. They will say that. Your efforts or your desire to uh, drill down into counterterrorism issues or to confront uh, terrorism and jihadism more directly, they'll say that it's rooted, they being the left, the Democrats, much of the media, much of the fancy, overpaid, oh, look at how great we are, media. uh, They will say that it's because you don't like uh, brown people. That this is often this is an accusation that is leveled they'll say you don't like people who are non-white that this is rooted in uh, racism and what's interesting to me is that one for all the different reasons I've described and discussed it's not true it's a slander but it's effective right to call people a racist is a very good way of of shutting down discussion but if it were about just racism if it were about objection, to uh round people i, I would want to know w- what do we do with some of the following information i think this shatters that line uh, of argument in the united kingdom uh there are and they will often refer to people as asian and in the british context asian usually means what we would think of as south asian meaning the indian subcontinent india pakistan bangladesh afghanistan uh that's because of their demographics, they've had a very large influx because of the British empire and some of the former British colonial possessions. Uh, They've had a large influx of people from South Asia in the 20th century. Um, But only a percentage of them, of people who come from uh, South Asia in America, we usually, we think of Asian because of our demographics and the long immigration patterns of uh, people from mainland China and other places. Um, we think of Asian as East Asian, right? Asia is a huge place, so you get that. Uh, but in the context of South Asian immigration into the United Kingdom, uh, all, all people who will have, generally speaking, the they, they would have the same appearance, same skin color, or same ethnicity. Um, again, generally speaking, right? I mean, you could talk, sit down with people, and uh, can you def- who can tell the difference? Um, between uh, a, a, a Sikh and, um, and a Muslim. Well, it depends. Is the Sikh wearing a turban that, that signifies? But uh, when you're looking at this as a function of race, of skin color, uh, you, you can't tell the difference, or at least most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference in terms of appearance. Uh, but Hindu Sikhs and Muslims are all in the U.K. in considerable numbers. Um, I have uh, numbers from the St- Office of Stati- Office of National Statistics in the UK um and they had the following for 2011 uh, over 800,000 Hindus in the United Kingdom uh, almost a half a million Sikhs in the United Kingdom again these are people of South Asian descent uh and so you add those together you've got you know over let's call it 1.2 1.3 million Hindus and Sikhs in the UK there are roughly 3 million Muslims um, in the UK, of all different uh, from from all different Muslim countries all over the world, or you know, have, coming from countries, Muslim countries from all over the world. Uh, what's interesting, I think, about this data is that as you look at terrorist attacks in recent years, you'll notice that there are uh, well over a million, uh, well over a million non-Christian, non-white South Asian uh, Brits. And from within that population, there have been a grand total of zero terrorist attacks. Not one. N- not, not that this is like, well, there's a few, but there are more from within the uh, Muslim community. There are zero uh, Hindu or Sikh suicide bombers in the UK. There are zero Hindu or Sikh um, motor vehicle mass murders, whatever we call these attacks where they drive into a crowded place. Um, and so when we're trying to, but, but if you look at within the Muslim population in the U.K., which is uh, 3 million or so, and uh, the U.K. has a, about 53 million people overall live there, uh, you'll notice that uh, there are some mass casualty attacks, whether we talk about the uh, bombing of buses or metro or the, their uh, underground subway system, uh, airports, um, the assassination on the street of um Uh, that of the british soldier rigby uh there have been a number of attacks by people of well people of muslim ideology you see the point i'm making here is it's not about ethnicity and it's not about skin color um when people say the focus on the muslim population in the uk as more likely to be uh, involved in terrorism is rooted in racism uh well there's not a focus on hindus who are non-white there's not a focus on sikhs who are non-white um and come from the same you know, you know ethnically speaking come from the same region of the world as, as a large portion of the muslim population in the united kingdom it's about ideology it's about ideas and belief and while only a small subset of muslims overall in the uk obviously have extremist views and a much smaller subset even than that are jihadists uh, you can exclude based on the statistics. Uh, over a million Hindus and Sikhs in the United Kingdom um, because it has yet to be a problem. So if we're going to apply our resources in an intelligent fashion, we should look at the numbers. But the numbers also show us that counterterrorism efforts and a focus within the Muslim community is not rooted in racism, clearly. It's just rooted in a reality of what has been happening. We'll hit a break. We'll be right back.
0: Buck Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825.
4: Soft targets such as Manchester Arena are a symbol of the West's success. This is a piece, that's the title of a piece, Uh, by Michael Brendan Doherty, who joins us now. He's a National Review senior writer. Michael, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for having me. me. Uh, I I really enjoyed your piece, and uh, I wanted to share some of it with the audience. You write that the message of Salman Abedi's attack on young girls at a pop concert is much more chilling, and it is one that is being delivered more frequently. It is the same message of the spectacular 2015 Paris Attacks which targeted restaurants, a soccer match, and another concert hall, the terrorists are telling us that as long as we continue to live our lives and pursue leisure at night for no other reason than our own enjoyment, we are in peril of death. I, I completely agree with your sentiment here. I wanted you to just expand on it a bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a natural tendency among among some people to you know, want to treat uh, terrorism as... as in terms purely of politics, and and much of it in the past has been, right? Many terrorist organizations had clearly legible political goals, even if you disliked them, right? The IRA wanted a united Ireland. Even Osama bin Laden would list, you know, political objectives of his terrorism. But what we are seeing more and more often now is uh, you know a radicalism that really knows no bounds and considers uh, any person uh, in the West a target um, any person who's not in in total conformity in their lives to radical Islam and it's it's a truly chilling uh, phenomenon and and I think it speaks to um, uh, it 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 helps to shock people out of this idea that there's just some foreign policy response or some kind of you know gesture of cultural respect or or uh, attempt at integration in Europe of Muslim immigrants that that will solve the problem of of radical Islamist terrorism and um i, I think
4: well this uh, is i, I wanna, yeah. as i was reading your piece michael i thought to myself that it was uh, take it for a while. We, we would hear that they, they hate us from our freedom post 9-11. And then I, I think many on the left turn that into uh, a, a term that they would sneer at. You know, oh, yeah, they hate us for our freedom. No, they hate us because of of the Palestinian problem or they hate us because of the air campaign in Syria. or They hate us because of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. They would always attach these other other issues to them. But actually, the Islamic State does hate us for our freedom in the sense that uh, they hate that we conduct our lives as we do in the prosperity and liberty and success that we do while the more extreme parts of the muslim world to be sure are living in oppression and uh backwards situation and and a lot of the time uh, uh fear and squalor right and
2: that's and that's and that's why you know since donald trump you know unconsciously or not he landed on a, on, a, on the correct word: evil losers. And in a sense, radical Islamic terrorism grows out of this sense of uh, that radical Islam has lost on the world stage. That in that in the first three centuries of Islam, the 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 there was nothing but expansion, military conquest, and triumph over all enemies. And somehow, now the godless in their minds, West. Is obviously more powerful, more rich, and the Islamic world is is sent in daily reminders of its humiliation. Um, you know, its despotic governments, the triumph of Western pop culture. Um, you know, for good and ill, and and Islamic radical uh, Islamic terrorism is a response to that sense of being a loser, being history's loser, and there's nothing that offends a radical so much as other people engaging in behavior that's trivial or fun, you know, something that is just uh, done for its own sake. And and really doing things for their own sake is kind of a uniquely Western achievement. Uh, it, you know, It is it grows out of our Christian and humanistic traditions. It's It's part of who we are. And that is why, you know, in a sense, I say that, when they attack a concert, you know, even of a, you know, a pop star's concert like Ariana Grande, you know, this isn't—Ariana Grande isn't going to be remembered centuries hence like Mozart. But the fact is, the ability of Western people to enjoy themselves completely on their own terms is a monument to our own success as a civilization. And, and that is why it's chilling to watch uh, these soft-targeted—targets— um, come under fire.
4: There's that quote uh, attributed to Mencken about how puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Uh, I think in, in the modern context, that sums up a lot of the Islamist and, and jihadist attitude to the rest of the world. That there is a rage yeah. at freedom and joy and prosperity in, that, that exists outside of the Muslim world for many, not just in the Muslim world, but who have come from that background and that ideology because they're told that islam and this this is not just the muslim brotherhood although it's it's a lot of uh, it's uh infused all throughout their rhetoric that islam is the solution to all things that islam is the only truth it's always true and it solves all problems well clearly it doesn't solve all problems
2: right and and, and in a sense like the, the 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 radical has to explain why is it that the the islamic world is in a state that it's in and the the answer that the wahhabist and other radical sunni sects have come up with is that somehow uh, you know islam lost it, it defected from the first 3 centuries of its life it lost its fighting spirit it lost its purity of will and so these these um you know, that is why, you know, you have people saying, well, we have to start enslaving the enemy like, you know, Muhammad and others did in the first three centuries of, of Islam. We have to start, you know, putting the infidel to the sword like we did then. That will restore the strength of Islamic civilization. And, and it is this radicals' dream, and it, it is, it, and it leads them to do things that, um, you know, previous terrorists, groups that we we dealt with would never do
4: and uh we're speaking to michael brendan doherty here he is a senior writer for national review he has a piece up about uh manchester that i highly recommend to you uh before uh we have to run to a break here in a couple minutes michael i want to ask you just your, your thoughts about uh trump and the pope today we're switching gears here trump and the pope what do you think
2: <laughs> i mean it's you know it's a curious thing i mean these uh you know, a lot of the commentary about Trump and the Pope has been about what opposites they are. Um, and I actually think what's more striking is the similarities, uh, in the sense that both are, um, both President Trump and Pope Francis are sort of helplessly themselves. You know, they constantly, um, they're loquacious, and when they speak out, they kind of coin these uh, fascinating little insults and put-downs of their enemies, They are, uh, you know, they're, they're full of humor and, and sometimes, you know, a little spike of, uh, of bitterness in, in some of their sayings. And, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it speaks to this kind of populist moment that we're living in for both figures, um, in their own way. Um, you know, they, they, they shoot from the hip and, uh, so I, I don't think it's what what distinguishes them uh, is the most fascinating thing. I think I think uh, they're kind of an iconic duo in the in the moment.
4: All right. Uh, well, Michael Brendan doherty is a senior writer at uh, National Review. Check out his latest at nationalreview.com. Michael, thank you so much for joining the program. First time, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Uh, team, we are going to hit a break here, and we'll be right back. Stay with me. So the mayor of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Betsy Hodges, decided to give the state of the city. I didn't know that was a thing that, well, it's not done here in New York as far as I know, but I don't know, maybe it's done other places. So instead of the state of the union, uh, or I guess the state of the state, this is the state of the city, gave that address from a mosque in Minneapolis. And she also had some words about president trump of course play it please
1: cities like minneapolis and the people who live in them are squarely in donald trump's sights his agendas of oppression and regression and suppression have no place in minneapolis and we are standing firm in our resistance to them when donald trump comes after any part of our community He'll find four hundred and nineteen thousand Minneapolitans and me standing squarely in his way. That's the kind of wall I can support
4: comes after anyone in our community. What is she even referring to? Well, she's speaking in a mosque, so of course, we can assume that there's some tie in here there there's some connection to Trump and Uh, radical Islam and counterterrorism policies and the efforts of the Trump administration to prevent terrorist incidents like what we saw in Manchester from happening here at home in America, Um, but also to take a hard line on some issues of Islamism and the uh, immoral, unethical practices that sometimes, sometimes come along with it. From the Minneapolis Star Tribune. This will not get nearly as much attention as I think it should. But let me just share with you the headline. I think the headline will grab your attention for a moment here. Minnesota bill against female genital mutilation raises opposition. So, there is a bill that would impose uh, stiff penalties in Minnesota that is uh, being considered right now for the process known as the barbaric act known as FGM or female genital mutilation. And they are now considering a bill that would allow for prison terms of five to 20 years for those who subject their daughters to this process um so that you would think uh would be a very straightforward proposition right the bill has won support from all but four of 128 minnesota house members um so as, as a step back from this by the way it should be noted why is minnesota having to grapple with this problem why, why is this an issue well, because FGM is a practice in Somalia. Um, it is a practice in uh, parts of uh, Muslim, uh, Muslim sub-Saharan Africa, and it is also uh, even in parts of North Africa and Egypt. Um, but FGM has now been, in a sense, imported along with some members of the Somali immigrant community in minnesota and there was a case recently of somebody who uh was in a a a lot of well was prosecuted for this um but there is pushback from the somali community because that's really we're talking there's a there's a substantial somali community in uh, minnesota by the way also that that has led to efforts in the past to join shabab you've had people which is the al-qaeda offshoot in somalia you have had uh, whole networks of individuals who have been who have tried to leave or have left Minnesota to go fight with Al Shabaab in Somalia. Um, but there's a, uh, a pushback on this issue. There's concern, and they're saying that it's because um, they worry, here, let me tell you what's said in this piece. the Council for, for Minnesotans of African Heritage uh, argued the legislation, carries overly harsh punishment and unintended consequences, including the possibility that newcomers from countries where genital cutting is widespread uh, would not seek medical care and other services for their children. They call for a less punitive approach focused on educating parents. Um. There, So there are groups, let me just be clear, there are organized groups in Minnesota who are opposed to a 5- to 20-year punishment for the, mutil- the, the general mutilation of young girls. Um, this is something that I would think would get a lot of national media attention. Of course it will not. And now I, I'm going to assume here that they're not just uh, that we're that we're not talking about individuals who are OK with this practice at some level or think that there are versions of this practice that are not uh, not so reprehensible, uh, although that's an argument that I've heard. Some will say that that it, and it, it, pardon me for using this language and the terminology. There's no way to talk about it, though, without using the words. Um, but genital cutting can be there are variations on this practice. Um, and therefore, you know, you, you, you can't just use a, a, such a broad brush. I have even heard the argument made that, well, uh, m- male circumcision is fine in this country and is considered a, uh, a, a well, is a religious practice, but it's also just done in, in a lot of hospitals. Um, it is chosen done for reasons that are actually sanitary reasons. Uh, that's okay. Why isn't female circumcision which is what they've tried they've tried to call it that as well um they've they've begun there's a debate over the very terminology of this why isn't that considered okay what they do in this process is uh maim the female uh female genitalia such that there will be um lifelong complications lifelong pain uh pain during sex pain uh, just in general chronic pain, as well as uh, in, in, uh, very real risks of infection and all kinds of complications that do not exist for the well-established and longstanding practice of, of male circumcision. So efforts to try and compare the two are are, are wildly disingenuous, but that's been done. I, I've heard uh, Islam apologists uh, talk about is, Islam apologists, Try to say, well, how, how different are these practices really from each other? And the answer is they are quite different. Um, but here you also you have a group of people that are coming together in Minnesota and are opposed to the harshness of this punishment for FGM, for female genital mutilation, which can include up to a process of, of really re- removing the female uh, sex organ in its entirety. Um, and uh, this is done, well, uh, it, it's so brutal and barbaric and insane that it's hard to even think of why it is done. It's done so that women do not receive any sexual pleasure. And uh, it's, a, it's a form of very clear subjugation of females and to let them know that they are there for the for the enjoyment of males and for procreation, and that is it. And this is a a, a among the most horrific things that one can think of. I mean, you can put this in the same category of depravity and evil with, you know, throwing acid in someone's face and completely disfiguring them for life, which also happens, by the way, in the Muslim world more frequently than it does anywhere else. Um, But that there is any open effort to push back on this and say that the penalties are too harsh. And We need to educate people about this. What does this say about some of the immigrant population that we are addressing here? Uh, they, they really need to. So they're, they're concerned that people will come to America and be like, yeah, well, we're just going to do FGM because that's the way it was done back home. This is uh, a pretty shocking admission, or should be at least, about what goes on in some quarters of the and i know people would say, "Oh, but that's so unfair and you know the the moment you have this discussion and we're talking about protecting little girls we're talking about protecting young prepubescent females here from a horrific practice and you you bring this up and you you want to do the right thing and they're trying to establish laws for this and yet there are some who are more concerned with uh, with diversity and multiculturalism and bowing at that altar than they are about protecting young girls from this process, which, by the way, they can die from as well. Um, so legislation and people will say, "But Buck, it's so rare, and this is this is a uh, this is stigmatizing to the Somali community." I say, "Okay, if it's so rare, if it's not, why not have really strict penalties for this?" Five to 20 years? That, that sounds about right. How can there be any pushback on this? But there is. There is. There are the, the, the Council of Minnesotans of African Heritage are trying to tell people that the punishments are too harsh. I mean, this is something that people should pay attention to. Uh, but the media won't touch it. I'm going to hit a quick break here, team. We'll be right back. Welcome back, team. Stunning uh, report has come out that says that over 700,000 foreigners overstayed their visas in 2016. 700,000. That's from the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Well, if we're going to talk about securing borders and immigration security, clearly we've got to look at what do we do about almost 700,000 people who are not supposed to be in the country who are in the country from the last year alone who came in via a legal process what do we do about this what policies should be in place we're joined by jessica vaughn she's director of policy studies at the center for immigration studies jessica thank you for calling
3: glad to be with you
4: uh this this seems like a this seems like a lot i guess that's that's one way to put it jessica uh almost seven hundred thousand people overstaying their visas now uh, correct me if i'm wrong if you overstay your visa intentionally, there's a penalty that you can't come back into the U.S. legally for quite a period of time.
3: Yes, uh, either three years if you uh, overstayed six months or less, and over, uh, t- you can be barred for 10 years if you overstayed for longer than that. But that's only if you actually leave. Um, if If you never leave the country, then that penalty might never be applied to you. um You know this was passed back in the day when Ted Kennedy was still running immigration policy, so every time someone thought up a a penalty for something immigration related um he managed to make it ineffective <laughs> so um but yeah, seven hundred thousand of anything is a lot and and it's a huge number of people who overstayed their visas. Um, It's grown from 2015, the last time the Department of Homeland Security issued a report like this. In that year, it was uh, in the high 500,000s who had overstayed. And I'm not surprised that the number grew because the Obama administration has been issuing more and more visas every year and imposed policies to direct the State Department to issue more visas and make it easier for people to apply and to get the visas and we don't have any meaningful interior enforcement i should say we didn't used to have much meaningful interior enforcement that would identify people who overstayed and and tell them tell them or force them to leave the country and we don't have much meaningful immigration enforcement at workplaces so it's easy for people to get jobs even if they're not in the country illegally so for all those reasons the the number of overstays has grown to, grown to a huge number Uh, and especially from certain countries, particularly African countries, the rates are in the double digits. And this year, for the first time, the Department of Homeland Security looked at how many student visas are being overstayed, and they found that people who come in on a student visa are about four times more likely to overstay than the other categories.
4: Now, the people who are overstaying... I'm assuming that they know because they had to go through they went through the legal process to get the visa initially. I'm assuming they are aware that there is a time limit for their visa here and have made the uh, the knowing decision, the the active decision to uh, violate their their visa's length of stay, which then brings us to, well, do they just plan on staying forever? Because why else would you overstay your visa?
3: That's right. And they know full well. Most of them applied for the visa with the intent of overstaying, although it's, you know, certainly some of them may have changed their mind once they got here. But I think they're really in the minority. I, I used to be a consular officer um, adjudicating these visa applications. And, I you know, I heard uh, lots and lots of excuses and stories. I think I've heard them all, you know. Um, people say, oh, gosh, I didn't realize the visa expired, or, you know, I always thought I was coming home, but, you know, what happened was my sister had a baby, and she needed help with it, or I found out about this, you know, job opportunity, and I thought, you know, I would just stay for a month, and it turned into three years. You know, you hear that stuff all the time, but, um, you know, the problem is, is that we're giving too many people the opportunity to overstay.
4: Well, Jessica, but I, I really want to ask. We're we're told uh, time and again, and it's the official number. Of everybody, we're speaking to Jessica Vaughn, who's director of policy studies at the Center for Immigration Studies, about this DHS report that says that seven hundred thousand foreigners, over seven hundred thousand foreigners, overstayed their visas. In 2016, there is um, such a focus on well, I'll I'll get to southern border security in a second here, but uh, the the number we're told, Jessica, is 11 million illegal immigrants in the country. And that number never really changes. It hasn't changed in a long time. And people say, well, now net immigration from Mexico is down to zero and leaving aside whether that's true or not. How is it that we can have 700,000 visa overstays and the number now isn't more like 12 million illegal immigrants in the country? You know what I'm saying? I don't understand how that works.
3: Oh, I can tell you how that works. We, we actually, my colleague, Stephen Camerata, who uh, studies um, who, who mines the Census Bureau data for clues on the illegal uh, population, has found that the numbers um, have been growing in the last couple of years and that we are up to about 12 million people um, settled in the country illegally. The reason these other studies don't show that is because they don't go past 2014, which is when the numbers started going up again, um, in large part because of not only overstays, but the surge of uh, people coming over the southwest border, um sometimes seeking asylum sometimes you know people from central america but this you so, know
4: so so we can say it's 12 like it's defensible yeah, now you know if i went 12, on cnn absolutely. if i decided to jump into the arena over there and i said well there's 12 million illegal immigrants in the country that's defensible now by the numbers because everyone still says 11.
3: right but uh again these are the same people that want the number not to have gone up
4: right of course
3: i i, I you know i hate to be that cynical but it's true um and, you know, but what we've found from looking through the census data, census data is that it definitely has been creeping up very recently. So, and it's it's no surprise because we've been issuing more visas, more people have been overstaying. The Obama administration policies toward enforcement were very lenient. They sort of sent the, the undertone was if you make it here to the United States and you don't get convicted of a very serious crime, nothing's going to happen to you so who wouldn't come under those circumstances
4: right so okay so the number is not what we've been told that it is which i've I've known for a while but it's good to hear from somebody who's crunching the numbers that that is true um we focus on a wall or at least the debate the discussion in this country focuses on the wall and security at our southern border but if we have uh 700 plus visa overstays a year it would seem to me that's a much there are many more people who are in the country illegally through that process than, based on what we know, came across the southern border last
1: year.
3: Um, I, it may be more now. It's, it's always been estimated at about 40 percent, um, that visa overstayers make up about 40 percent of the total illegal population. I think it could be more like half by now because of the growth in the number of overstays. But I mean,
4: how many legals came across the border last year in 2016? Do we know?
3: Um, we never know because you don't know which ones got away. We estimate that it's somewhere around 500,000, 550,000, but, but there's no way to know who you didn't catch. And that's why we actually, uh, in our studies, use the Census Bureau data. You'd be surprised, you know, how many people here illegally fill out a census.
4: <laughs> but but again, Jessica, and we're speaking to Jessica Vaughn at Center for Immigration Studies Policy director. I'm not trying to be obtuse here, but I I, I am I am always very curious about this. For, so for years now, you're telling me that it's like roughly half a million illegal crossings a year at the border. And it's, you know, five, six, seven hundred thousand visa overstays a year. I mean, there's no way that the number isn't isn't considerably higher, not just than the 11 million. But I'm starting to think, I mean, there's no way this isn't going up by half a million people a year for years. Or, or, or what am I missing? Are there, is there a big outflow? I'm not taking into account.
3: There is an outflow. For one thing, some people get deported, and sometimes the people who are being deported have families and they go with them, even if they weren't actually a target for deportation themselves. Um, some, some people die while they're here, but a large number end up getting legalized in some form, so they leave the illegal population that way. Um,
4: so you've okay. been involved in the visa process, by the way. How easy is it to try to track down people that came? I mean, I you know went through paperwork. I'm sure had to go through customs, immigration. Uh, do, do we know where people are who overstay their visas and just don't care, or is it really hard to know where they are?
3: Well, it is hard to know where they are, but on the other hand, the government has never really made much effort either. They would be removed if they encountered them, you know, after an arrest or something like that. But um, they, they aren't actively looking for very many of the overstays. only if they get information um, that the person is possibly a national security threat or a criminal threat. For the most part, uh, they just wait to see if they get caught some other way, uh, because most of immigration enforcement is focused on people who've been arrested uh, there is very little worksite enforcement anymore to deter it. And that's really, you know, what we have to focus on is removing the incentives to come here. There's there's never going to be a time where ICE is able to, you know, go around and locate every illegal alien and remove them. We have to rely on deterrence and, and, you know, when you can't get a job, when you can't get a driver's license, you can't collect in-state tuition or get other public benefits or live here Easily as an illegal alien, that's when people change their minds and decide that it's not there's no great benefit to doing this. They might get caught and detained, but they don't want that to happen, so they go on their own or they never try to begin with so that that's how most um enforcement really happens is through deterrence like that and people leaving on their own and there're always there' have always been a few hundred thousand that leave on their own. Um, we need to make that number larger as well as increasing actual deportations and you know at that point, when we turn up the heat a little bit on enforcement, more people will start to leave on their own, and fewer will come
4: What, um, what kind of differentiation is made between countries that uh, when it comes to the visa process, what are the tiers or what are the criteria that are used? Uh, to determine whether somebody from, you know, is, is it easier for somebody from Great Britain to get a visa here than somebody from Iran, for example? I mean, how, how do they do that?
3: Well, yes, definitely. There are uh, more than 30 countries in the world that we don't require a visa. Right,
4: visa waiver, right.
3: Right, and and the U.K. is one of those countries. Um, but, you know, it is harder to come from certain countries Um, basically what the law requires is that the consular officer um, has to uh, asks the applicant to show evidence that they are likely to return and the burden of proof is supposed to be on the applicant to to show that they have a life in their country that's that's, um, good enough that they're not likely to abandon it to go live in the United States and um, you know it's been getting these standards have been getting easier and easier as time has gone on as um, various administrations have wanted to promote tourism and visits and this sort of thing, so it's gotten easier to get these visas, but it needs to get harder when you have countries with double digit uh overstay rates, you're issuing too many visas. you know when you've got seventy eight percent of the students from a certain country overstay their their visa. We shouldn't issue so many student visas in that country. And so this data that's been produced by DHS is really the first step in, in uh, justifying policy changes at the State Department to just, you know, say no a little more often and a little, more, you know, more in a targeted way, uh, to, especially in places that have now we know high overstay rates. Um, to just prevent people it's much easier to prevent people from getting here who are likely to overstay than to find them once they've uh, become embedded here
4: jessica vaughn is director of policy studies at the center for immigration studies go to uh, cis.org check out her latest jessica thank you so much for joining us
3: my pleasure good to be with you
4: all right team we're going to hit a break we'll be right back Well, President Trump met with uh, the Pope today, and I don't know yet what they really talked about. Um, Trump uh, Trump and the Pope, very interesting. Also, I think um, Callista Gingrich, Newt Gingrich's wife, has now been appointed ambassador to the Holy See. She is the ambassador to the Pope. Uh, but uh, Melania Trump is getting some headlines because, well, as you know, because we talked about it here on the show, uh, Melania Trump did not wear a, uh, an Islamic veil, did not wear, well, 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 I should. it's not really a veil, in this, it's called a hijab, right? A hijab is a head covering. Hijab is a broad term used in Islam for covering of the head. It can range from what you'll see in uh, some parts of uh, Eastern Europe um, with, you know, with a, essentially a scarf wrapped around the head. Uh, to the full, the most extreme version is the burqa, which you see in Afghanistan, uh, which is enforced by the Taliban, and it's the full covering head to toe with gauze over the eyes. Then there are variations. The face veil specifically, that the, the part of the hijab that would cover the face is called the niqab. Uh, and then there's, in Iran, there's a long uh, coat that will be worn, uh, a shador in uh, Saudi Arabia, the covering of the head, and it's like a long cloak, is known as an abaya. These are different variations on women's dress. I actually studied Islamic constructions of gender in college. It's a very interesting class, um, very left wing, but still interesting nonetheless. Uh, that was where I learned that uh, many Muslims were outraged that Princess Jasmine in the Aladdin movie was dressed like a belly dancer, which, which is she, which she, which she was. But I digress. Uh, but Melania Trump wore a uh, a veil when she met with the pope, which people are saying seems to be a, it's it's called a uh, mantilla. Uh, she wore this veil, a blackface veil when she met with the pope. And people are saying, well, why does she show respect? Uh, she's a well, one. She's a Christian. I think she's actually a Catholic. Uh, why did she show this respect when meeting with the pope? And she didn't wear the hijab in Saudi Arabia. Um, a few things there. First of all. Uh, meeting with the single m- most senior figure of an entire religion, a, a global faith, m- maybe you have a, you know, a-, a little extra respect to the dress code for that, um, as-, as opposed to just meeting with like, the Saudi royal family. Uh, that's for one. And two, this is uh, another a-, a game you see on, on the left. A lot, of, uh, a lot of leftists will do this. They'll say, well, you know, and- and this happened as I knew it would with the visit to, to Israel. Uh, people will say, "Oh, well, look, you know, if she went into some ultra-orthodox neighborhoods, they they do things just like the Taliban does with dress codes." It's not true, and it's not enforced by the state, and it's not as extreme. Um, and this, this is kind of like saying, "Well, Buck, you can't uh, you can't criticize the way that women have to dress in Saudi Arabia under pain of corporal punishment if you like wear a suit when you go to church on Sunday." You know, this is just nonsense. Uh, Wearing a a black veil for the specifically for the meeting for a a meeting with the pope uh, as a form of, of respect is different from saying you have to wear this all the time in public. in in our entire country i know it covers your whole body and we can't see your face not that there's a little a little uh uh sort of light uh veil that you can see right through anyway uh worn as some kind of a tradition you know this is the left does this too with um you know they'll say that you know wearing a, a wearing a yarmulke wearing a burka it's all the same no it's not the same The more extreme versions of Islamic dress code are oppressive, and they're meant to demean women, and they're not okay. But I just think it's interesting that, of course, Melania meets with the Pope, wears a veil. Oh, she wore a veil for the Pope, but not a veil for the Saudi royal family? Yeah, Saudi royal family. All right, anyway, we'll hit a break. We'll be right back.
0: (laughs) The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com.
4: Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Welcome to our three here, team. Great to have you with me, as always. Thank you so much for joining in the Freedom Hut. Fantastic piece by Victor Davis Hansen in National Review today. Um, it's regime change by any other name. Um, I, I, want, I want to read some of this to you, um, and it, it's, it's really powerful stuff. All right. Here, here's this is VDH, Victor Davis Hansen himself. Uh, election machines in three states were not hacked to give Donald Trump the election. There was never a serious post election movement of electors to defy their constitutional duties and vote for Hillary Clinton. Nor, once Trump was elected, did transgendered people begin killing themselves in alarming numbers, nor were there mass resignations at the State Department upon his inauguration, nor did Donald Trump seek an order to ban all Muslims from entering the U.S. Uh, Instead, he temporarily sought a suspension in visas for everyone, regardless of religion. From seven Middle Eastern states that the Obama administration had earlier identified as incapable of properly vetting, vetting uh, travelers to the U.S. The first lady did not work for an elite escort or prostitute service. She never uh, said that she and young Baron Trump would not be moving to the White House. Barron does not have autism. Trump's father never ran racist ads as a supposed candidate in a purported political campaign. Kellyanne Conway denies that, in a private conversation between segments on MSNBC, she privately remarked to host that she had to take a shower after working for Trump. Donald Trump never suggested to the Mexican president that the U.S. was going to invade Mexico, nor did Trump plan to mobilize the National Guard to send back illegal aliens. Trump did not remove a Martin Luther King bust from the White House. His deputy attorney general did not threaten to resign over the Comey firing. Yet all that is what daily we hear and read. Um, uh, It's so and and then he goes on. Uh, Fake news crowds out real news. Uh, And then he talks about all the issues that this is VDH that we are not talking about. But let me just start with his uh, very worthwhile recitation of all of the. Lies that are out there right now, um, or all the lies that were out there over the course of this, uh, over the course of this campaign, and and also early on in the Trump presidency, uh, the media's hatred for this president is indeed pathological. Uh, it it has reached a level of mass psychosis. It is abnormal. Um, there's something very very wrong with them, um, and. This is why his title, uh, Regime Change by Any Other Name, I think is so important because to understand what is motivating the daily news cycle right now, one has to first start with the proposition that the purpose of the media is not to give us facts and tell us what is going on in any given day in this country. The media has taken its purpose since Trump's election to be the removal of Donald Trump from office. Now that doesn't mean that the New York Times no longer runs uh, stories about the the, the latest in uh, you know, Chilean, Fijian cuisine in the East Village of New York or something, right? That that doesn't mean that every story is about that, but it does tell us that there's an overarching mission that supersedes everything else and that mission is to have donald trump removed from office either via impeachment in the house and removal in the senate or through a criminal proceeding which would also of course precipitate that earlier uh, the, the the first issue or the first process or in article 25 he's not fit for office or and i think this is the most likely I think that there is a a widespread belief among the biggest media outlets right now that if they can just make it hostile enough in D.C. for the president, if they can ensure an environment where the president's daughter can't go take an aerobics class without people uh, wanting to lecture her or hiss at her or be nasty to her, if they can ensure that uh, Trump's people are enmeshed in an endless investigation which is what this whole special counsel thing is very quickly going to become where you have faces that are white with anxiety that are um, ghostly in appearance because they've got to go in and face some you know FBI inquiry Uh, they've got to sit down and people say oh they must be guilty no you don't you don't ever want to be in a process uh, whereby you can be prosecuted for your statements, even if they're not intended to cover up any crime, even if they're not related to any crime, and even if there was no intent to obstruct or throw off investigators. Um, it's, it's a hazardous situation to be in. Um, and anyone who has been through an investigation or has had to sit down with federal investigators... Uh, as i have in the past and uh, i can tell you it's not fun um it is very stressful but back to the environment that the media is trying to create here if they can just make it uncomfortable enough for all of trump's people and if they can uh stymie trump's agenda if they can slow down the draining of the swamp or if they can make sure that he doesn't fulfill promises that he would like to but He's unable to for whatever reason, with the Congress all, of course, concerned about their future electoral prospects. Maybe they can make it so horrible and nasty. Maybe the swamp will be so steamy and smelly and gross in D.C., which is really just a description of what D.C. is actually like in the summertime, by the way. Um, But they can drive him out. He'll quit. He'll be done. Now, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think that there is... Uh, a part of Donald Trump that would just never, and it is it is related to his ego, it is related to his sense of self, but I do believe that there's a part of Donald Trump that would never uh, concede defeat in, in that way and that he would resign. But these are all the different options that are being pursued right now. Um, you have, CNN and MSNBC have set themselves up, uh, have set themselves up as, uh the resistance they are now openly well msnbc is open but cnn still pretends that it's not although i i have to note that there are so many cnn journalists that i see who are uh on social media on twitter in particular openly hostile to the president and mock the president and cannot produce a single similar tweet a single similar public utterance of hostility or mockery of the previous president, and yet they pretend, they they tell us all that there's no um, political agenda at work over there uh, on any of these cable networks that are so uh, filled with hatred against Trump. You see, this is, by the way, one of the reasons, and I always have to explain this to my liberal friends, of which I have many, they say, well, you don't feel this way, you don't take Fox News to task for being supportive of Trump and I want to tell them, well, th- think about, it. you know, on the left, they're always talking about uh, context and, and, and intersections of power and trying to balance that out. And they like to use both public shaming and virtue signaling uh, as well as um, the law to try and, and balance out uh, power between different groups. There is only one channel right now, and it is Fox News, that is not openly hostile towards the president, everything he stands for in his entire agenda. So I, I, I think it's really hard to make the case that um, I should be hard on Fox News for supporting the president when they're the only channel that is that has people that are openly supportive of the president. There is not one major CNN anchor or talking head or anything who is pro-Trump. Yeah, they'll bring on some pro-Trump people, mostly to throw tomatoes at them on screen. But uh, you look at their lineup, right? You look at Anderson Cooper, Wolf Blitzer, Jake Tapper, Aaron Burnett. Um, Christiane Amanpour has has said that opposing Trump is an ethical duty, more or less. I mean, she's come out and said that. But uh, you you look at all of their primetime anchors, and they're Hillary people, you, and you know this. There, there's there's not any there's not any legitimate argument to be had over this we're all aware they they are hillary voters they are hillary supporters they hate trump to tell me that that doesn't factor into the meetings that they have with their staffs before they go on on their shows at night is just laughable it's a joke it's preposterous but that's who they are they go on tv oh we're just journalists right it's complete nonsense But they are in the process of building, along with New York Times, The Washington Post, and all the leaks to them and everything else, they are in the process of creating the pressure for an end to the Trump presidency. Now, I'd like to point out to you that they also said that George W. Bush was illegitimate, that his victory was illegitimate, that Al Gore really won. This was a common theme early on in the Bush presidency, and then it was— The Iraq war after 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan after 9-11 that had to divert the media for a while. They had to at least play along and pretend to be fellow patriots who stood beside the commander in chief while he was engaged in a war in Afghanistan that that could not have been a more justifiable and necessary war. Um, And then a war in Iraq that was more of a judgment call. Um, and so that, that threw the media narrative off for a little while. No, after 9-11, nobody really wanted to hear about how Al Gore, you know, should, with the hanging chads and stuff, should have, should have won somehow. No, no one cared anymore. So they had a, a reset of the narrative, but I, I remember, uh, that they were trying to find a way to imprison Cheney. I remember that they were openly talking about Bush as a war criminal. And that they were uh, undermining the presidency in that way in a time of war. So none of this is really all that surprising to me with Trump, although their hatred for Trump, I think, does extend beyond their hatred for Bush quite clearly. Uh, But they have no intention of letting this president finish out his time in office, uh, even in his first term. They have an agenda. They are seeking as Victor Davis Hansen writes here, regime change. And that explains their serial sloppiness, if not fake news, false news on a regular basis. That motive, remember when I talked to you about motive yesterday, motivation. What is the motive for so much uh, credibility to be lost by the media with reporting on stories that they have to then retract or correct? Or, well, It's useful in the short term because it still adds to the climate of Trump is bad, Trump is evil. If you can run a story for a day that gets a million eyeballs, that says something terrible about Trump, and then you have to run a correction the next day that gets 100,000 eyeballs. Well, yes, to those of us who pay attention, that's a loss of credibility. But for the, quote, resistance, which is the anti-Trump media and Democrat Party. But, you know, the media, the Democrat Party are a symbiotic organism. They're they're part of the same we can just refer to them, for the resistance, that's a win. We have to start thinking of this in a whole new context now. Running fake news against Trump for the resistance is smart politics. By the time they change it, nobody nobody cares, nobody really even notices. But it has the intended effect. Trump's popularity plummets. I know this week his popularity is actually doing pretty well in the polling and it's it's rebounded, but... Um if they can run enough stories and create enough pressure, by the way, the pressure itself can uh, cause outcomes that are deeply damaging to the administration. Right, the, the pressure that the media has created has led directly to the appointment of a special counsel and their efforts to keep this Russia collusion narrative uh, in the front of the American people's minds uh, as much as they can will result in, of course, pressure on Mueller, the uh, former FBI director who is the special counsel, uh, but also will, will mean that individuals who know they are going before that counsel or who are going to be caught up in any way in that investigation, even if they are guilty, they know they will be uh, punished to the, uh, or even if they're not guilty, uh, they know they will be punished to the fullest extent of the law if they have even the slightest transgression, because the political pressure will be extreme. For anybody, even for the slightest wrongdoing within the Trump administration, uh, to get annihilated by that special counsel. So this is the mandate. This is the mission. The mission is regime change. That is what the resistance, the anti-Trump resistance, has in mind. And this is why uh, we are in an all-out dogfight. I mean, this is nasty. This is ugly. And... I will never be able to think of the media the same way. I find the the modern mainstream media to be uh, grotesque in its biases and just also um, really uh, kind of pathetic in their self righteousness. And there's so much sanctimonious crap coming out of the main media outlets these days about Trump and everything else. It's like. You know, you people were all fine with Bill Clinton and the Oval Office and Monica and the lying under oath. And, the, you know, and we're not even talking about Obama stuff, but just you're fine with all of that. And and now you're going to turn around and be the, the sanctimonious school about everything that Trump does in office. I mean, it's just it's pathetic. All right. I, I have to hit a break. But I really do recommend this piece to you. Regime change by any other name by Victor Davis Hanson. It is uh, it is excellent. Um, team, I'm going to go into a break. 844-900-2825. We will be right back. Oh, my. Big, big blaring headlines all over the place here about how the uh, House GOP health care bill would leave 23 million fewer Americans insured by 2026 than under Obamacare, according to CBO. This is one of the more frustrating uh, one of the more frustrating parts of this whole debate and discussion. First of all, the CBO. I, I know that it's nonpartisan and does good work, and I'm you know I'm not I'm not a numbers guy, so I have respect for people that that can really handle numbers. But the CBO has no idea what anything's going to look like in 2026. Okay, so let's start right there. Uh, the House GOP healthcare bill isn't even the law yet. And there's a lot of what you'd call garbage in, garbage out when it comes to CBO estimates because they're relying on numbers that aren't really the numbers, and then they're giving you numbers that are reflective of numbers that aren't th- aren't correct in the first place. So that's for starters. Uh, and 23 million fewer Americans insured by 2026 under Obamacare sounds scary. It's a scary headline. Oh no! There's all these all these people that have uh, that, that have. Less insurance. But this doesn't address some of the core problems that we've seen with Obamacare, or this avoids the uh, major issues we've seen with Obamacare, uh, including exchanges that are failing, exchanges that no longer will off- offer any policy whatsoever, um, because everyone's pulled out in the state. And we found out yesterday via California that single payer is is a recipe for just. Dis- bankrupting the country. I mean single payer is from a numbers perspective at least a total non-starter. Um but the GOP uh, house bill which I don't even think is that great by the way uh, is is not the law yet as I said that it would leave 23 million fewer people insured is the insurance bad that they have right now? And we're just talking about the individual market really has been mostly affected by Obamacare. Uh the insurance that people currently have under Obamacare is not good. Uh, just being, quote, insured doesn't really mean much of anything. If being insured means that you can't see any doctors within 100 miles of your house to deal with a med- uh, an urgent medical problem, although not an emergency medical problem, but an, a, a serious one. And if it means that you're going to have a $15,000 deductible on top of paying all kinds of uh, premiums, is that good? Is that something to celebrate? Our whole discussion over healthcare is based in a lot of talking points and a lot of phrases that are meant to evoke a certain response from the from the listener, but but not in the realities of what it means to have one of these Obamacare policies. I don't even think the GOP healthcare bill is very good. It actually keeps a lot of Obamacare, um, but that 23 million fewer Americans would be insured by 2026. Um, that's a number you have to take with a, a very large grain of salt. Um, I I don't buy that. That's really what would happen. And also, th- there's no way that they know what's going to happen in, in in ten years from now in terms of the healthcare market. So much will be changing anyway. Uh, but this is just a it's a propaganda fight. It's not really about healthcare. That's what you have to keep in mind. It's about Democrats scaring people into thinking that Republicans really just don't want poor people to have healthcare. That's that's what this is all about. And it's not true, and it's a slander, but it's effective, unfortunately. Uh, we'll spend some more time on healthcare probably tomorrow or the next day. Uh, I'm going to lighten it up and talk to you about some social justice warrior stuff here in, uh, in just a couple of minutes. You're, you're going to want to hear this. The conceptual penis as social construct. That's the title of a social studies peer-reviewed publication uh, that has recently gotten a lot of attention because the whole thing is a hoax. Now, here on the show, we often talk about how the left has lost its mind, and I like to use some of the crazy jargon, some of the neologisms, the new words, the new constructed words uh, that the left uh, really comes up with as a form of self identification, as much as anything else, you use these words, and then it means you're a certain type of person. If you unironically speak of mansplaining, if you, without uh, any joke in your tone, talk about cisgender or gender binary or, or, or any of the, or man spreading, uh, the patriarchy, these are terms that you use not just to describe something in a way that is often uh, frivolous or bizarre or nonsensical, uh, but it is more than anything else a signal to people around you that you're the kind of person that uses these terms because you're you're one of the smart, elite, progressive intellectuals out there. Uh, and it's all for show. Uh, there's no real intellectual rigor put into this terminology or the analysis that it is uh, used to support. Um so that, that's where we get to this so-called style hoax. Now, a, a quick word on this. W- what happened here is a couple of intellectuals, real PhDs, published a paper intentionally, intentionally trying to show how completely insane uh, some of the progressive left gender studies uh, journals and, and courses and just the, the entire course of study has become. So you have uh, Peter Boghossian and James Lindsay um, who wrote this piece, and this is what they say at the very... Remember, the piece is The Conceptual Penis as Social Construct, a Sokal-Style Hoax on Gender Studies. Now, that's what they're calling... They're posting online, but the the actual piece is just the conceptual male organ as social construct. I'm going to try not to overuse any... Terminology here that's uh, overly graphic, but this isn't a social, uh, a gender studies, uh, gender studies journal, and I, I can't really describe to you what's going on here without using some of the terms, and we're using them for the purposes of anatomic description and for uh, gender studies analysis. I'm, I'm not going to do this to just get away with saying uh, the word penis more often than is necessary, but it, it is in the title of this piece and. And it is something that comes up often in it. So here's the note from these from the editor once in every once in a while. It is necessary and desirable to expose extreme ideologies for what they are by carrying out their arguments and rhetoric to their logical and absurd conclusion, which is why we are proud to publish this expose of a hoaxed article published in a peer reviewed journal today. Its ramifications are unknown but one hopes that it will help rein in extremism in this and related areas. Now, this is not the first time this type of thing has been attempted and, and successfully, um, I might add, uh, uh, conducted. It is They refer to this in the title as a Sokol-style uh, affair, and Sokol was somebody who, he was a Alan Sokol, a physics professor at NYU, in the late 90s, he submitted an article to an academic journal called Social Text. Now, Social Text is one of those uh, postmodern journals of academic opinion that does postmodern cultural studies and is, is full of the same kind of jargon and nonsense and, and contradictory and, and flabby and worthless thinking that you see with so much of the progressive left today. And, you know, keep in mind, this whole approach to discourse and to debate where made-up terms are used uh, as a signaling mechanism in place of real scholarship and research. It's just uh, proclaiming your membership in a tribe. It's saying, I'm part of the group, so I use mansplaining, I use patriarchy, I talk about intersectionality. These are all... And I know a lot of you are like, Buck, what, what is this all... You know, this doesn't affect my life. No. These academics who use these terms are, one, uh, they are brainwashing your children, whether currently if they're in college, uh, college or will be shortly, with this terminology. And it's all very politically loaded as well. Uh, the moment that you concede intersectionality is a thing, then you are conceding that our entire society is based on a whole bunch of different interlocking forms of oppression— And you're conceding that patriarchy is real, that racism is systemic, that our entire conception of America is a falsehood because the real America is just competing forms of oppression. And, of course, at the top of that hierarchy sits white Christian males, the ultimate oppressor, the ultimate evil, really, in intersectional Studies And intersectionality on college campuses across the country is taking over. And it is also now increasingly in newsrooms. It is in media. This is how people who think of themselves as elite intellectuals speak and think. So it's important. Um, and if you had sat down with members of the Obama administration at the very top level, if you had sat down with President Obama himself, and maybe this will still there'll still be an opportunity for this, I guarantee you if you had brought up intersectionality or the patriarchy, he would take that discussion seriously. So remember, Marx and Engels were just a couple of frustrated writers, right? And they changed and unfortunately largely destroyed whole parts of the world and generations lived in slavery and despair and misery because of their writing. Words, thoughts, ideas do matter, matter to all of us. So bring it back here. And remember, we're talking about a fake paper, a fake academic paper that was submitted specifically to expose just how insane and baseless and nonsensical modern academia specifically on the topic of gender studies, has become. I mentioned Sokol. Sokol was a professor. He was the first one to famously try this tactic, and he submitted an article to Social Text in the 90s. The title of his article was Transgressing the Boundaries Towards a Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity, which was just full of jargon and was completely... It was blather it was piffle it was garbage to anybody who knows anything about quantum theory or physics or gravity or really even just has a plain understanding of the english language so that was the Sokol affair in the 90s now we have a modern version of it with the conceptual penis as social construct now this was published it was peer reviewed it was up on a uh, it was up on a website where they uh, think everyone is supposed to think that this is high level intellectual stuff and this is how the piece begins the andro scientific and meta scientific evidence that the penis is the male reproductive organ is considered overwhelming and largely largely uncontroversial the piece then goes further than that and intentionally tries to both Engage in the political signaling that I've been talking about where you're showing you use the terms not because they have meaning, but because by using the terms, you show what kind of person you are. You show you're an academic. You have this this level of training. It really is like a made up language. I don't know if any of you when you were kids, you were hanging out, you know, in the schoolyard on the jungle gym with your friends. You made up words That you think, you know, maybe I did this when I was a kid with a few friends. It happens. Uh, But you would make up your own little language or your own words, at least. Uh, That's what academics do, but they do this and then they infect the rest of society with this terminology that they make up. uh, And this is an example of that. So there's the political signaling in the piece, and then there's also. Using words that have using words strung together that sound fancy but have no meaning. This is the kind of thing that stupid people think sounds smart. That basic concept has overtaken much of modern academia. It it, it is words strung together that unintelligent people will think intelligent people use. And it's it's all based on. On a, on a facade, it's all a front, it's nothing. Okay, but back to this piece, uh, the male organ as, the conceptual male organ as social construct. Still, this is a quote from the piece, still, even as a conceptual penis is hopelessly dominated by recalcitrant social construction that favors hypermasculine interpretations of the penis as a notion unjustly associated with high male value, Many cisgendered hypermasculine males, for instance, seem to identify those aspects of their masculinity, upon which they most obviously depend with the notion that they may carry their penis as a symbol of male power, domination, control, capability, desirability, and aggression. Uh, then it, What does that mean? It means nothing. This is what you're supposed to take away from this. There's more. It is also observable in the hypermale performative behavioral trope of man-spreading that is inconsiderately inconsiderably spreading his legs too wide in public, uh, for example, on public transport such as planes, trains, and automobiles. The usual excuse for man-spreading is centered directly in the conceptual penis as a male social discourse. Uh, And then it goes, this behavior, seen from the perspective of the conceptual penis as a performative social construct, is clearly a dominating occupation of physical space, akin to raping the empty space around him that is best understood via the machismo braggadocio isomorphism to toxic hypermasculinity. What the heck are they talking about? Of course, that's the point. They are talking about complete and utter nonsense, intentionally spreading nonsense, and in this case, discussing man spreading as quote raping the space, the empty space around a person. Um, there's more in this, and we have this up on on bucksexton.com. So if you want to read the whole piece. And there are parts of it that even I I didn't want to read on air that are that are hilarious, but are a little too a little too graphic and a little too involved with the the bodily functions and bodily parts. Uh, They get into some slang terminology Uh, that this would be published by people whose job it is to uh, be critical of what is worthy of going under their, uh well of a byline and of a piece that's going to go up under uh their heading is astonishing and yet it's not, right? We know this. We've been we've been suspecting this for a very long time that this terminology and this obsession with using uh big words strung together that are just a signaling of the virtue of the speaker or the writer not not evidence of any real thought, and certainly not evidence of any real uh, contribution to academia. Academia has a problem. It has a it has a uh, such a lack of self awareness, and has become such an echo chamber in the social sciences. Gender studies being the worst. Uh, l- let me just go on record and say this: Gender studies is a useless field of study. Okay, a gender study should be being a normal. Uh, well-adjusted human being who has respect for both genders. See, I just committed a cardinal sin there. Both genders? No, Buck, there are 27 genders. Wait, what are the 27 genders? Can any of the PhDs that would say that to me and that would write for social studies and gender studies journals like this, can any of them name the 27? No, they cannot. But they like that there are 27 so they can call people like me a bigot. Because I don't know, and I don't agree. I think there are two genders. Gee, I must be a bad person. This piece is brilliant for what it does, and uh, the conceptual penis as a social construct is well worth the read, Um, and we are finally getting individuals out there to shed light on what a cesspool academia has become. Um, Academia should be enlightening and teaching and sharing wisdom, and it is now just a self-congratulatory social club for people who are largely misanthropes and think of themselves as, as above, the, above the filthy, unwashed, uneducated masses, but they have no real knowledge or discipline to share, and so they mask it with all this garbage and all this jargon and terminology, and I'm glad that it has been exposed, and I think there'll be other efforts to do the same thing, um, it, it is a fascinating piece. That's a Sokal affair, part two, if you will. Uh, definitely check it out. The conceptual male organ as a social construct. Uh, it's not a social construct. It's a thing. It's a, it is a thing that separates a male from a female, and it's it's a, a real a real object. And I'll just stop the conversation on that there. Um, but yeah, manspreading. You're rape. You're raping space if you manspread. You need to get consent from the space first. I'll turn. Okay. Welcome back, team. So Vice President Mike Pence spoke at Notre Dame University over the weekend and at their commencement. And at first he had a nice warm welcome from the chancellor or whomever this guy is. On behalf, On behalf of the of University of Notre, Notre Dame, Day, we are honored to welcome the 50th governor of our state and the 48th vice president of the United States, Michael Richard Pence. Yay, you got, everyone's all happy. So they got the vice president speaking at their graduation. You'd think they'd be happy about this. But then, all of a sudden, the social justice... Oh, oh, there it is. Social justice warriors, social justice warriors—they're so brave, they're so tough. Uh, they stood up and walked out during Pence's speech, uh, and people were booing them. I should know—they were not booing uh, Governor. I'm sorry, Vice President Mike Pence. You know, there's a lot of ways we can take this. I know that those who want to always make excuse for the babyish snowflake left will say, "Oh, well, this is—they have free speech rights. They should be allowed to do this." Uh, they're just exercising their, you know, rights as, as Americans. And uh, yeah, sure, you have the right to stand up and walk out of a graduation. I, I don't believe you have the right to just disrupt it because that's then infringing the rights of other people. But, uh, you know, if you want to stand up and walk out, you can. Uh, you also can just not go. Um, but what do they think is accomplished by all of this? I don't even want to make this political necessarily. I guess I already have. But I look at this more in in terms of what is uh, what is thoughtful, what is considerate of your fellow students. It's their graduation. For a lot of them, it's very meaningful. Personally, I have very little attachment to any of the schools that I went to, and I don't really have an, have an, have an emotional connection to them that lingers to this day or anything. But for some people, it's a huge deal. Can't they enjoy their graduation without some petty act of you know political showmanship? That means nothing that no one really cares about. Yeah, here I am talking about it, but, you know, we'll forget about it tomorrow. And These snowflakes are just acting like punks. You know, they might as well submit a piece to a journal of uh, gender studies that means nothing. It would be a better, also a waste of their time, really. All right, team, thank you so much for joining. Great to have you here in the Freedom Hut, as always. Please do go to BuckSexton.com. Check out our, our posts there throughout the day. Type in Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes and you can subscribe to the podcast. Would love it if you would do so. Until next time, my friends, as always, Shield Time.